Turn to Judges 15. I'm not going to be spitting on anyone tonight, but I will be breathing fire occasionally. Somebody say amen over there. You know, as you read the story of Samson, and we started a couple weeks ago, it's easy to forget what his original purpose was, isn't it? You look at this guy, and he's busy acting on, on, on impulse. He seems to be led by his feelings. He's doing what he wants to do, not necessarily what the Lord wants him to do. By the way, what is it the Lord wanted him to do anyway? I forgot after reading chapter 14. Let's go back to chapter 13, verse 5. And to refresh our memories, and, and there we find out what it is that Samson was to do. This is prophecies given to his mother before his birth. It says, For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, Samson, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. It's very simple. There's two assignments given to Samson. Number one, he's to be a Nazarite, completely separated unto God from birth. Number two, he's to begin to deliver Israel from Philistine rule. Now, he did understand that. You see that at different times, but he didn't always live that. Now, I will say he certainly despised the Philistines, unless they were women, unless they were Philistine women. He didn't despise them. He did know he was a Nazarite, but he didn't seem to really care about that normally. He seemed to be more interested in his will than God's will most of the time. He pursued what brought him pleasure. He seemed to follow his own heart. Now, the Lord had chosen him to be the judge of Israel, but in his mind, that seemed to be secondary to what he wanted to do, to his self-centered plans. But that did not deter, deter the will of God, did it? God accomplished his purpose anyway. You know, we often get in the way of God, uh, who's seeking to accomplish his purpose, and we promote our own agenda instead. We allow our sins and our desires and our selfishness to get in the way. And we get off the trail, and we become obsessed with our own purpose, and that's exactly what Samson did. All three chapters are basically the same story of his adult life, chapter 14, 15, and 16. They have a common theme, and this is the common theme of chapters 14 through 16. The Lord accomplishes his purpose in spite of Samson pursuing his own personal agenda. He accomplishes his purpose in spite of Samson pursuing his own selfish agenda. That's the theme of chapter 14 and chapter 15 and chapter 16 in different ways it manifests itself. Samson wants to do what Samson wants to do. And the Lord works in spite of Samson. And that's what happens. By the way, it doesn't mean he gets away with what he wants to do. He doesn't get away with it. He meets with tragic consequences along the way and at the end of his life in particular. We never get away with our own agenda, do we? If we neglect the Lord's purpose, we don't get away with that. Tonight we're going to focus on chapter 15 of Judges, and we're going to find that to be true there as well. The first eight verses of chapter 15, we, we see Samson seeking to carry out his own revenge. He seeks to carry out his own revenge. Let's read the first eight verses of chapter 15. It says here, But after a while, in the time of wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat and said, I will go into my wife in, in her room. But her father did not let him enter. Her father said, I really thought that you hated her intensely, so I gave her to, you, to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. Samson then said to them, This time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. 
Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and turned the foxes tail to tail and put one torch in the middle between two tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain along with the vineyards and groves. Then the Philistines said, Who did this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that I will quit. He struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter, and he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Now you may remember in chapter 14, we covered that, that Samson had married a Philistine woman, the ceremony concluding with a seven-day feast. The feast ended badly for Samson because the Philistines found out his riddle. And he was very angry at the turn of events. And because of his anger, he leaves Timnah, the Philistine city he was in, and goes back to Judah, his hometown in Israel. Look at the last sentence of, of verse 19 of chapter 14. Chapter 14, 19. Samson's anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. You see, Samson's always controlled by his emotions. And so what does he do? He storms off and leaves his wife standing there and, and leaves and goes back to his hometown of Judah without his wife. He goes back without her. In the meantime, do you see verse 20? Samson's wife was given to his companion who has been his friend. There was companions at this wedding party, and somehow the father gave one of his companions his wife instead of Samson. But he doesn't know that yet. He doesn't know that information yet. He's seething with anger in his hometown. So after a period of time elapses, we don't know how much time. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, after a while, whatever that means, after some time elapsed in the time of wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat. So there's some time that elapses. Now, wheat harvest was sometime in May or June. We don't know how long before that Samson was married. But there had been a period of, of separation for some time. So he goes, he decides after some time to visit his wife. And he brings her a young goat. There's this young goat appearing again, like in chapter 13, right? Probably to appear, appease her, probably to soften her heart. Apparently, he thought he would go back to his wife and resume the marriage as if nothing had happened. And everything would be fine from that point on. Now, today, you might bring your wife a box of chocolates or roses. Or maybe a young goat. You might try that. That might work. That's what Samson did. By the way, let me say a word about marital relationships here. You know, just because you bring your wife a box of chocolates or roses doesn't mean that all your problems are now fixed. You know, it may be, it's a good gesture, a nice gesture, but you might have to work on communication and you might have to work on other issues as well, especially if there's been a blowout in the relationship like Samson caused here in this relationship. Usually not a quick fix to problems like that. It might take some unselfishness, some humility on your part, some apologies, and some work. But Samson has something else in mind. He's got the physical consummation of the marriage in mind. He, he's ready to go on a honeymoon now. He's been seething with anger. Now that's over with. And he's got to the point where he's back now. He's ready to go, and he wants to go on this honeymoon. So in verse 1 he says, I will go into my wife in her room. However, there was an obstacle standing in his way, and that was his father-in-law. He says, it says here, her father did not let him enter. Why? Because look at it, listen to his reasoning in verse 2. He says, I really thought that you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your, your companion. Now, why would he think that? 
What would lead him to think that? Could it be Samson's recent actions of, of just being angry and leaving and, 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 and going back to his hometown? I mean, he blew up, didn't he? He got mad. He couldn't control his anger, and he showed the Philistines, and he showed his wife, and he showed everyone else, I'm not putting up with this. And he threw a temper tantrum and went on home. And Samson, that's how he is. He's going to have his way. That's what he does throughout his, his life. Now, none of us would ever react that way, would we, to circumstances like this? We wouldn't, we wouldn't do that if we were put in trying circumstances, would we? Nobody here would do that, I'm sure, but Samson did. And so his father-in-law is well aware of this, and he, he, he not only thinks that Samson hates his daughter, it says here, I thought you hated her intensely. I really thought you hated her with all your heart, and so I said, this isn't going to work out, and I gave her to somebody else. He's got good reasoning for feeling that way because the way Samson acted. I can hear him in the next wedding, I can hear the question, who giveth this woman away? And the guy says, her mother and I do. That first marriage didn't work out. But because he was a thoughtful Philistine, his father-in-law, former father-in-law of Samson, and in true Philistine fashion, he, alters, he offers an alternative, and that is this. I've got an alternative plan. I'll give you her younger sister. And it says in the NASB, is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. Now, the literal translation there is, is not her younger sister better than her? What a great father, huh? This younger sister is better than the, the older daughter. Why don't you take her? Let me just say in passing here that parents should never play favorites with their children. And I've seen it happen again and again. Never play never never think that one is better than the other. I've seen this happen, where parents give that impression to the children, and, and some of the children feel feel slighted because they feel like their older brother or sister or somebody in the family is better than they are. Children should be treated equally by their parents. They should all be loved. They should all be encouraged, and we do them a great disservice when we play favorites among children. It can cause great harm. But this father seems pretty callous here. Notice what Samson's replies in verse 3. He says, This time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm, or I will be free of blame, you could translate that. Now, you know, he's going to do them harm, by the way. That's what he means to do now. Now he's really upset. You thought he was upset in chapter 14? He's very upset now. now is this, he says, This time I shall be free of, of guilt. I'll, I'll be blameless when I act my, enact a, a vengeance on the, on the Philistines. Is this an admission of guilt from chapter 14 when he killed 30 Philistines to, to win his bet, to, to, to complete his bet over the riddle? There it says that the, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him in verse 19 of chapter 14. He killed 30 Philistines. Now that was the Lord's purpose, even though Samson may feel guilty about it. I don't know what he felt. But listen to this. It seems as if Samson feels guilty at the wrong time, and his conscience is clear when it should be guilty. It's always kind of going back and forth because he's got these self-pursuits he's going after and he's confused all the time. Notice what action he does take in verses 4 and 5. Uh, he, he gets the foxes and ties them together and sends them into the fields. Now the word fox, let me just take a little side road here. The word fox can be translated fox or jackal. And I, I bring this up because all the commentators seem to have a common consensus on this. I'm just going to throw it out there for what it's worth. In Israel, jackals were more common. They were similar in appearance, but were more common than the foxes were. Apparently, they hunted in, in packs while the foxes hunted alone. 
they could be caught more easily, and so many think they're referring to jackals. Now, I don't really care what it is, personally, but whether he catches jackals or foxes is immaterial to me. But what he does is tie their tails together. He, put tor- he puts torches in the middle of their tails. He, sets, he releases them and sets the fields on fire. Now, you say, how did that happen? How could that happen? Is that even possible? And I can only attribute it to God's strength. It doesn't say here the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him like it says in other places. But it does say in chapter 16, uh, verse 17, Samson recognizes that his strength, strength comes from God. So I think it's his God-given strength that God allowed him to do this. In chapter 14, he killed a lion when the Spirit rushed upon him. In chapter 15, now he's getting 300 foxes or 300 jackals and setting them loose in the fields. Now, you remember in verse 1 it said this was the time of wheat harvest? That plays an important role in this section right here. It's the time of wheat harvest. <clears throat> and then in chapter 14, verse 5, it talks about the vineyards of Timna. <clears throat> so that's their economy, the vineyards, the wheat harvest. Samson is still in Timna at this point. And the fire that started, that he started, wiped out just about all their crops in that whole area of Timna. Verse 5 says that the fire burned up the shocks. That was grain that had already been cut and was waiting to be stored up. It says the fire uh, got a hold of the standing grain, grain that was still in the field. It says the fire burned all the vineyards and the groves, the olive groves. And so basically he wipes out all their crops. He wipes out their entire economy at this point. Do you think they might have been mad, the Philistines of Timnah, for what Samson did? He causes a great harm to them economically. And so in verse 6 they said, who did this? Well, it didn't take them long to find to put the, who to put the blame on. It was Samson. They blamed Samson. And they say the reason is Samson's getting revenge for his wife. Notice what they call him, Samson, the son-in-law of, of the Timnite. And he did get his revenge. And by the way, Samson did not get revenge because he was carrying out God's purpose, but because he was carrying out personal retaliation to even the score. He was seeking personal revenge. But in doing so, did he not carry out the Lord's plan as well? He's beginning to get deliverance from the Philistines. He did. Both things are getting accomplished at the same time. But for all his efforts to do this, Samson gets paid back. Now, in Judges, look at Judges 14, 15. It says there, when the marriage was, gonna, was taking place, and the Philistines wanted to find out the riddle from his wife, they said, entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle, or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. And in Judges 15.6, that is exactly what they do. The Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. That was brutal, horrible death. They fight fire with fire. Samson started a fire and burned their crops. Now they get her back, get him back with fire. So it's revenge on both parts. But there's a second act of revenge by Samson. And that's found in verses 7 and 8. Samson said, since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that I will quit. He struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter, and he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Samson again vows to get revenge, personal revenge. He's not trying to, he's not interested in God's mission right now at this point. He's interested in getting his personal revenge. He's got a personal grudge match going with the Philistines. And so he says, I'm going to do this and I'm going to quit, but that's not the last time he gets revenge, by the way. But in verse 8, he absolutely slaughters them. See in your NASB text, the textual note on the side, 
You might have it in your NASB. It says he struck them leg on thigh, literally. This attack against the Philistines was brutal. It was vicious. It was a bloody, violent assault. And he, and he kills, I don't know how many people. And then he goes to live in a cleft of a rock, possibly to hide out from the Philistines for maybe further retaliation from them. I don't know why. But he never seems to be involved in the mission for the right reason, does he? He never does. It's always based on how he feels. This chapter primarily has to do with Samson needing to find satisfaction through getting personal revenge. It's a personal vendetta against the Philistines now. The fact is, he should have never gotten involved with the Philistine woman to begin with. That would have eliminated all this. But he just never seems to be on the same wavelength with the Lord. He's just doing his own thing, pursuing his own will. And in this case, his will involves seeking revenge against the Philistines. The next section, Judah seeks to capture Samson. That's found in verses 19 through 13. Judah, his home people, seek to capture Samson. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lehi. The men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And they said to him, As they did to me, so I have done to them. They said to him, We have come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me. So they said to him, No, but we will bind you fast and give you into their hands, yet surely we will not kill you. Then they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Judah seeks to capture Samson. The Philistines at this time are just incensed. And so they, they march into battle now against Judah. They go into Judah's territory. They set up camp. And why? Well, Samson's motives may be wrong, but he's having a detrimental effect on the Philistines. I mean, they're highly incensed now. And so they, they move into military action, literally. And, this, and the place they set up camp is a place called Lehi, which we'll find out about later on in the chapter. In verse, t- verse 10, the Philistines state their purpose for their military, this military action. What do they say? They say there, uh, we have come up, why have you come up? We have come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. We're going to do to him just like he did to us. We're going to get revenge against him. Now it's going back and forth. They've come up for one man. They didn't come up to fight Judah. They only came up for one man and one man only. That was Samson. You know, if you think about it, all the judges, maybe with the exception of Shamgar, they all fought with an army, didn't they? They gathered an army to fight against the enemy. But not Samson. He never fights with an army. He always fights alone. It's him against them. He doesn't even think about getting an army together. He's so full of revenge. He fights alone. And so you have this army coming against one man, Samson. That's how big of a threat he was to them. They were so worried about him. They said, we've come up to bind him in order to do to him as he did to us. That is the same motive that Samson had. Same motive, retaliation, revenge. Let's get even with him. Now, you might think that Samson's countrymen, the Judahites, would back him, but they they don't have any interest in backing him at all. There's 3,000 of them. 3,000 of them. And what do they do? They go to get Samson, to bind him, to give him to the Philistines. Now, the, the fact that they send 3,000 men is evidence that they, too, were afraid of Samson. They're just as afraid of Samson as, a Judah, as, as uh, the Philistines are. 
And they don't have any problem finding him. They seem to know right where he is. He's in this hiding place, but they know where he is. And they go and get him out of hiding. And they ask him a question. And this question reveals their attitude toward their deliverance from the enemy. Look at, look at verse 11. They say, this is a key question here. Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us, Samson? Don't you know that we're under domination by the Philistines? Don't you understand this? They're ruling over us. That reminds me of, I thought of that. I thought of Luke 24 where Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. And he appears to them and he asks them, what's going on? And they say, are you the only one visiting the area here and you don't know what's taking place? Christ has died on the cross and so forth. You're unaware of the things that are happening here. Of course the Lord knew what was going on. And of course Samson knew in his time what was going on. He knew full well that Philistines were ruling over them. He knew that. That's why he was among other things, supposed to be on a mission from God for that at least. But Judah makes it abundantly clear that they don't want any trouble from the Philistines. They want to live under the domination of the Philistines. They don't want to be delivered from them. They want, as I said two weeks ago, they want to keep the status quo just like it is. They're content to live in the status quo. Let things remain as they are. They would rather live under the domination of the Philistines than have the Lord rule over them. They're very content in the circumstances. They accepted the status quo. And so they're upset with Samson. And <clears throat> sometimes we as the people of God are, 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 are happy with the status quo. We're content with the way things are. We, we're caught up with our habits of life that are detrimental to our spiritual well-being, but we're, we're content to live in these circumstances. We don't want to rock the boat. We, we say, let's just let well enough alone. Let's be content with the way things are. Sins are dominating us, and we say, let's just let it alone. Let's live with the status quo. We can't do anything about it anyway. Can't win the battle. Let's be content in this. It's easier not to fight against the flesh, isn't it? We don't want to discipline our lives, and so we're content with the way things are. Is that where you are tonight, living in spiritual defeat while the enemies are dominating over you, the sin and Satan and the world? You know, this is a sign of ju the judgment of God that the Philistines were ruling over them. God is judging them. And they're satisfied to live under his judgment. They're happy and content with that. should never be content with that. That's where repentance comes in. And getting right with God comes in. And getting rid of idolatry in their case, and in our case, comes in. Well, the question that Judah asked Samson was absurd. Do you not know that the Philistines are ruler over us? Can't you just leave it alone? Let them rule over us? We don't want any trouble with them. And the answer that Samson gives them is, is just as absurd. In verse 11, he says... As they did to me, so I have done to them. That's it. That statement summarizes this chapter. As they did to me, so I have done to them. It's all about retaliation on his part. I'm going to get back at those guys. They got me, I'm going to get them. They're going to get me again, I'm going to get them again. We'll keep playing this game back and forth. I don't care how long it takes. You ever heard anybody say that? That kind of thing? They're going to treat me like that, I'm going to treat them back like that. They're not going to show me respect, I'm not going to show them respect. I hear it a lot at work, James. Doesn't that sound childish, though? Doesn't that sound childish? That's how Samson sounded. Samson is, is behaving in contradiction to the way that God told judges to behave. Do you know that God expected something of the judges of Israel, even though we look at this, this, this disaster <laughs> that's taking place in judges, and we say, well, the judges are lost cause. But God expected something out of them. Turn back to Judges chapter 2. 
Judges 2, 16 and 17. It says here in Judges 2, 16, Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. The Lord raised them up, right? As he, as he clearly raised up Samson, there's no doubt about it. Verse 17, Yet they did not listen to their judges. They didn't listen to their judges for... They played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked and obeying the commandment of the Lord as they did not do as their fathers. So, what do I get from this verse? I get the understanding that the judges were supposed to be telling the people something about God. They were supposed to be listening. The people were supposed to be listening to the judges because he was saying, and she was saying, Deborah, you're to live for God. You're to follow God's way and, and put away idolatry and things of this nature. But I don't see, I never see Samson giving helpful spiritual advice to anybody in his, in his time as judge. I don't see him doing that. I don't see him being an example to anybody necessarily. I just see him doing his own thing all the time. I see a person who's immature, a person who's self-willed, a person who's only interested in getting his own way. That's what I see out of Samson. Not someone who's a judge as God intended them to be. Later on in Matthew 7, 12, Jesus will say these words. He will say, whatever you want men to do, to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What is that called? What do we call that? Golden rule, right? That's how we're to live. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He was summarizing, the Lord was, what the Old Testament said. This is the law and the prophets. But Samson did not live by the golden rule, did he? He lived by his own rule, stating in verse 11, As they did to me, so I have done to them. Again, we're to live by the golden rule, not by the one that Samson set up for himself, which is what most people live by. As they did to me, so I do to them. So how does Judah respond to all this? Verse 12, they insist that they bind Samson in order to deliver him into the hands of the Philistines. They give their word they won't kill him, but they know pretty much that the Philistines are probably going to kill him. We're not going to kill you. He says, swear to me you won't kill me. Okay, we won't kill you. But we're pretty sure the Philistines will. They don't say that. At this point in the narrative, both the Philistines and Judah, his own people, are opposed to Samson. Right now, everybody is against Samson. He has nowhere to run or hide. The last part of this chapter is the Lord seeks to carry out his purpose. In verses 14 to 20, the Lord seeks to carry out his purpose, the Lord's purpose. Verse 14 says, When he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, so he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. When he had finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand, and he named that place Ramoth Lehi. Then he became very thirsty, and he called to the Lord and said, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned, and he revived. Therefore, he named it Ain Hakor, which is in Lehi today, to this day. So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Notice the first line of verse 14. 
When he came, when Samson came to Lehi, bound with the new ropes, the Philistines shouted as they met him. They shouted. That word shout refers to a war cry. They see Samson, and they can't wait to get their hands on him. And so they, have this, they send out this battle cry as they prepare to kill him. They're so excited. They've got their enemy within their, within their reach. They're ready to pounce on him and kill him. They shout with a battle cry. Why? Make no mistake about it. Whatever you have heard about Samson in Sunday school or anywhere else, this guy is a one-man wrecking crew. He truly is. He has really gotten to him by this point. And they know this guy is, there's something, this, this guy is insane what he can do. He's wreaked havoc on the Philistines. And they wanted nothing more than to get rid of him from their country. So here you have an army facing not another army, but just one man. Samson, right? A solitary man. He has no weapon in his hand at all. His hands are tied. His arms are also bound, it says. He's bound with new ropes to ensure that, because they're stronger, to ensure that he won't break those ropes. He's unable to fight at this point, and he comes to them, one man, with nothing. The odds are completely against him. And this is when the Lord steps in, in verse 14. It says, the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. It rushed upon Samson so that the ropes were on his arms were as flax as burned with fire. His bonds dropped from his hands. The spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Did you notice the two images of the spirit of the Lord that are mentioned there? Wind and fire. The word spirit can mean spirit, wind, or breath. And then it says it rushed upon him as if wind were rushing. And the idea of fire is here also because it says that when the spirit rushed upon Samson, his, the ropes that bound him, they disintegrate like flax that is burned with fire. You have these two images of wind and fire. Does that, uh, does anybody, does that ring a bell with anybody at all? Acts chapter 2, right? Later on, day of Pentecost. Acts 2, 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. Spirit of the Lord. When the Spirit of the Lord is at work, supernatural things happen, and he's powerful, and he does great things. When he came upon the, the, the men in Acts 2, they spoke in languages they had never learned. Ryan's trying to learn Mandarin, <clears throat> very, very difficult language to learn, one of the most difficult in the world. And I, from the beginning, I knew this is, this is the number one prayer request. Pray that Ryan and Caroline can learn Mandarin, very difficult. And here these guys are given a language they had never learned to, to preach and to speak. And so the Spirit of the Lord did great things there. And the Spirit of the Lord does something that's impossible here in, in Judges 15. He enables a man to kill a thousand men by himself. According to verse 15, he finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey. And that jawbone became a weapon in the hand of Samson. It became a weapon. But it's a weapon that the Lord received greater glory from than if he had a sword or a bow and arrow, isn't it? Just there laying there, fresh jawbone of a donkey. Even the jawbone brought honor to God in that respect. You know, this is the third time the animals play a role in, Samson, in the Samson narrative. You have the lion in chapter 14 that he kills. You have the foxes or the jackals, whichever. The ongoing theological debate that takes place over that. You have the, now you have the jawbone of a dead bo- a donkey he's using. And it shows us that God can use anything. can use anything or anyone to accomplish his purpose. Whether that is 
another donkey, Balaam's donkey, or whether that is the jawbone of a donkey, or whether that's Balaam, who was not as good as the donkey, actually, not as, does, didn't act as even as pr- proper as the donkey. He can use anybody or anyone or anything. This jawbone was freshly dead, so it wasn't dried and brittle. It was probably bloody, probably damp when he got it. Somebody said that even in death, God can be served, and he was in this instance, the death of the donkey. God used the dead donkey's, uh, the jawbone of a dead donkey to do his purpose here. Now, now, the question I had when I read this was, wait a minute, what about the Nazarite vow? How does this affect the Nazarite vow with Samson? Because he's already maybe blown it already anyway. But he handles this dead animal, right? So what's going on here? The Spirit of the Lord is rushing upon him, and he picks up this dead animal that maybe God providentially even put there for him. Well, it depends on whether that part of the vow about not touching dead bodies talks about, is talking about people or animals, and that's another debate I'm not going to get into. At any rate, Samson is unclean according to Leviticus at this point. That can be taken care of later by doing the proper ceremonial, obeying the ceremonial law. But at the point is he kills a thousand men with it. That is impossible without divine intervention. You can't kill a thousand men with a, jaw, a fresh jawbone of a donkey without God intervening, and he does. But who's the real hero of the story? In Sunday school, you see the pictures of Samson. I remember seeing pictures of him <clears throat> and, you, you, you know, his long hair and all that. And he's the, who's the hero of the story? Is it Samson? It's the Lord, isn't it? It's the spirit of the Lord that rushes upon him that it empowers him to accomplish this. But don't forget, there's always a human instrument involved when God works. And that's us weaklings, right? He uses people who are not great, (laughs) sinful, oftentimes imperfect, uh, definitely, to do his purpose, carry out his will. So Samson is this human instrument involved. God uses people to do his work. And this is the way he is designed to be. He uses people to do his work, and, but he's to get the glory for it. Well, Samson is elated at the victory, and so being a poet, somewhat of a poet, right? Remember back in chapter 14, the riddle he came up with? He fancies himself somewhat of a poet. He comes up with a poem or a song in verse 16. This is the form of a poem or a psalm. It says, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. He talks about a heap or a mass of dead bodies around him, a thousand dead bodies around him that he's killed, and they're all just laying around dead, and he's amazed at this victory. It reminded me of Shamgar, as it probably did you as well in chapter 3 of Judges, who killed 600 men with an ox goad, right? Here Samson kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, and so he names the place in, in memorial, Ramoth Lehi, we talked about Lehi earlier which means the high place of the jawbone, or as it's more commonly called, Jawbone Hill. It's kind of like in Vietnam where they had Hamburger Hill where they named some of the battles and things of that nature. Jawbone Hill. So the spirit accomplishes an amazing victory through Samson at Jawbone Hill. This is absolutely amazing, isn't it? But another thought occurred to me as I was looking at this. I thought to myself, you know, three times now, Samson has been overtaken by the Spirit. The Spirit has rushed upon him to do a certain task. But in the general course of his life, Samson never is in submission, living in submission to the Spirit, is he? He's a vessel to be used at different times to accomplish the, the purpose of God that he said he would accomplish, but he never seems to be living in submission to God. He seems to take the Spirit for granted. 
Like he's always going to be there, and I can do whatever I feel like. The Spirit will be there to help me out when I need him. Lion comes to attack me, he's there to rush upon me, I'll get him. Uh, if I need him for another purpose, a thousand men, he's there to, to help me out. I just take him for granted. But what the Lord really wants from his people is what? He wants us to be yielded to the Holy Spirit, right? And so, the Lord, can, but the Lord continues to be gracious to Samson in spite of all this. And look at verses 18 and 19. Samson becomes very thirsty, and I can imagine he was very thirsty. He fought hard. I mean, he fought and killed guys with, the jaw, with a jawbone. It was probably still bloody. I mean, he fought hard, right? He, was, he didn't have an army with him. He wielded only a jawbone as a weapon. He should be thirsty at this point. He should be very thirsty. But now we see a rare moment in the life of Samson, very rare. <clears throat> what does he do? He does something spiritual here. This is rare. He actually calls upon the Lord in prayer. Samson not known for being a man of prayer, but he is a man of faith, according to Hebrews 11.32. Let's don't forget that. Don't forget Hebrews 11.32. He's a man of faith, but not necessarily a man of prayer, although he prays a couple of times, at least in the narratives here. But he engages in prayer. He says, Lord, he calls to the Lord. He says, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. He, he understands that, and he credits God with the victory, too, the first time he's done that. He hasn't said anything about God at all, hardly, even though the Spirit's been rushing upon him. He never said anything about the Spirit when it rush, rushed upon him to kill the lion or anything else. He, but now, all of a sudden, he's crediting God with the victory, which is great. But now he realizes <clears throat> this truly is a great deliverance, and he acknowledges that the Lord has done it. He acknowledges that he's been the instrument that the God has worked through. He knows this, and he says it right here in the prayer. But now he's in great need. Even the tone of the prayer seems kind of strange to me, though. He's in great need. And until now, he's been doing his own thing. But now he's physically exhausted. Now he is, he's, he's just without energy. And so that opens the door for him to cry out to God. Because he's in great need at this point, And he needs God. And he knows it. And, you know, that may be what it takes for us to come to the Lord or to repent or to seek him. Is he puts us in a place of great need. He weakens us. Maybe, he needs, maybe the Lord needs to weaken us. Maybe he needs to debilitate us and exhaust us from all our resources. And so all we can do is look up to him. Maybe that's the only time we will look up to him or to get us on the road to following God. And so we cry out to God in our need. Samson was not self-sufficient, although he seems to have been all this time. But we're not self-sufficient either. We're dependent upon the Lord not every now and then, but every day, right? But the Lord is gracious to Solomon, and it says he splits the hollow... He split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that water came out of it. This is a miracle. This is an absolute miracle. In Judges 15, the Lord performs a miracle in the midst of the days of the judges, this horrible time period. The Lord performs a miracle in answer to the prayer of Samson, the guy who's not all that spiritual, it seems like. <laughs> it's amazing, right? Actually, you have Israel in the wilderness wanderings had a similar experience where the water came out of the rock. Really, you have two miracles this day. You have the miracle of the thousand Philistines being killed, and then you have this miracle of the water coming out now, this appearance of water. And so his strength revives, and he calls the place Ain Hakor. That means spring of the caller, the one who's calling out to God. Samson called out to God, and God met his need at this place, because why? God is gracious, isn't he? He's a gracious God, and he meets our need, even though we don't deserve it, certainly not. And so lasting was this miracle of the water of the spring that 
The spring was still present at the time of the writing of the book of Judges because it says there in verse 19, it says he named it Ain Hakor, which is in, in Lehi, even to this day when the book of Judges was written. It was still there some time afterwards, whatever time period that was. But the point of all this is that there is always hope for those who call upon the Lord. There is always hope for one who calls upon the Lord. And there was for Samson here. Verse 20 concludes by saying that Samson, the length of the time that he judged Israel was 20 years. So again, as we looked at chapter 15, we see Samson being a a man who is a strange combination of things. He sought to do what pleased himself, for the most part, but he recognized that he was God's servant. He got involved with a Philistine woman. He toyed with the Philistine men at the wedding, played a game with them, which backfired on him, by the way. He blew up in anger. He acts in an irrational manner. He's blinded by his desire for personal retaliation. As I said, the statement in verse 11 sums up the whole thing with Samson, his attitude. As he did to me, so I have done to them. That's how it's going to be. And the mission the Lord gave him from birth to deliver the nation Israel from the Philistines has now become this personal grudge match to settle the score with the Philistines with Samson outside of the Lord miraculously and sovereignly working at the end of the chapter. In spite of all this, the Lord is accomplishing his purposes. All this craziness going on. What's going on? All this, you're looking, what's going on in Judges? With all these, the Lord is still accomplishing his purposes, and that's how our lives are often, aren't they? Crazy. All the stuff we do that's crazy and sinful and off track, and God somehow, with all of it, accomplishes his purposes anyway. And it made me think of an event in the New Testament regarding Peter. As we close, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. Samson desiring to do his own will. I thought of this. Matthew 16, 13. We'll start with there first. Let's read verses 13 to 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is the spiritual highlight of Peter's life. He confesses that Jesus is the, is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And how did he get this information on his own, from his own brain? It says the, the Father revealed it to him. That's how he, he knew this. And so he passes this theology test with flying colors because God gave him the answer. It's always good to get the answer from God, right? But then notice what happens soon after. Look at verses 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Or literally, you are not setting your interest on the things of God, but the things of man. You're thinking about the things of man, Peter. And I think this is what Samson spent most of his time doing putting his interest on his time and efforts in the things of man rather than the things of God. 
He had his spiritual highlight at the victory of Jawbone Hill, didn't he? It was a great time. It was a sovereign work of God. But his life in total, we don't see that. We see a man who's self-focused rather than being God-focused. That's what we see out of Samson. Let me ask you a question. Where are you at tonight spiritually? Where are you at? Is your life centered on God? Or is it centered on yourself? Are you setting your affections on things above or on things on this earth? Are you driven by a desire to please yourself or to please the Lord? Which is it? For Samson, we know what it was. Tonight might be the night you need to refocus your attention off the things of the world, off the things of yourself, off the things of man, and get it back on the things of God. It's time to put away selfish pursuits, selfish ambitions, personal plans, and all that. Retaliation against individuals and refocus on Christ. Satan will do everything in his power to get your attention and focus off Christ like he did with Samson and Peter in that one case. So if you're setting your mind on the things of men tonight, you've lost focus of the real mission, as Samson did, of glorifying God. You've lost focus of the real mission. Tonight, let's get back to the real mission. Let's put our eyes back on Christ and learn to follow him and his pursuits for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, you thank you for your word tonight. We pray that it'll be uh, helpful to us. And we pray that we'll learn from Samson to put our eyes on Christ, take our eyes off the world, take our eyes off ourselves, and what we're trying to accomplish and realize that we're here to serve you. We're here to accomplish your purposes. We just pray you'd put this in our heart and soul tonight and keep it there always before us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.